This is Top Floor, episode 111. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 111. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast right up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Stephanie Daniel grew up in a tiny English village with one pub. So studying economics at Cambridge was eye-opening. After university, Stephanie spent 15 years climbing the ladder at Deutsche Bank, ultimately ending up with a series of firsts and onlys under her belt. One of the youngest and very few female managing directors, the only woman on the executive committee, and one of the highest revenue sales leaders in the company. Although she was deeply entrenched, Stephanie always knew she would leave the corporate world. So when she met now co-founder Shana Shaworski at a birthday weekend with a no-show host, it was only a matter of time before their conversations over glasses of wine turned into an entrepreneurial venture. Stephanie is CEO of Legends, a data company devoted to making travel more personal. Today, Stephanie and I are going to talk about pitching, privacy, and personalization. But before we do, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and other random strangers off the street who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404. 9630. Today's question comes from Lance. And he, Lance gives a little description beforehand. So he says, I want to enter pitch competitions. I want to apply for awards, grants, et cetera, et cetera. But I also have a really heavy lift and need to do work in my startup. I have a full time job. He explains a little bit more about that job. Any tricks to managing time for those extras like pitch competitions and awards over and above a really big lift at work? I know that this is the perfect question for you, Stephanie, because I think you're in these exact same shoes. So take it away. What advice do you have for Lance? Oh, that is such a good question, Lance. Um, And I often say I wish there were just five more hours in every single day to get everything done that we need to. So I think time prioritization is just an ongoing balance and struggle. Like firstly, there's the personal and professional balance, right? And then within professional is like you say, kind of, am I working in the business or on the business? So like in the weeds or on the overall strategy of the business. And obviously as a leader, you need to be doing both. Um, Uh, and so the way I approach it is I kind of set up my channels of what needs to be done. So just as an example, there's the overall kind of corporate level stuff. Then there's the uh, product level stuff. And then there's the go to market and sales level, um, level stuff. Uh, and then there's kind of a funding component to that. And I have to divide my time and energy between all of those things Um, and I very intentionally have to do lists for each of them. I will say that 
the value of some of these pitch competitions or more broadly, I guess, the category of, I don't really love the word PR necessarily, but I guess the getting your message out there and becoming known um, and frankly, like connecting with other people in the industry uh, has been so much more valuable than I anticipated. And so I actually wish I had put a little bit more time into it earlier. Um, and it takes, it takes a lot of time to kind of build that up, but I recommend carving out, uh, even if it's like an hour a week or whatever it is of intentionally saying, okay, um, what are the competitions or platforms that I think would be most valuable? Who are the people that I can start building a relationship with and just, um, start, start, start slowly, pick a few, pick a few ways to attack that. Um, but started early. Something I would add, Lance, is that if you're anything like me, I am extremely motivated by external expectations and obligations. So if, for example, I owe something to you, Stephanie, I'm going to prioritize that over something I owe to myself or need have promised myself mm. I'm going to complete. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if you could find another startup founder who's at about your stage or similar and create some fake obligations to that person. So like it's true. You, you write their nomination, they write yours or, you know, something like that to, to feel like you owe it to them. Yeah. I think that, I think that this concept of an accountability coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so exactly as you say, so I like, I have a co-founder, Shana, she's amazing. And like part of what we do is hold each other accountable to what we've committed to do. So Stephanie, you and I both grew up in small towns. For me, this resulted in only ever wanting to visit big cities. I have very little desire to go on a beach vacation or like a mountain cabin trip, any of that stuff. How did your upbringing impact your approach to travel or did it at all? Oh, hugely. So I think because I grew up in that tiny town... Um, you know, I think then when I started having travel experiences and seeing part of, you know, seeing the world, it kind of opened my eyes like, oh, there is this amazing world out there. Not only, you know, learning about other ways of living because I grew up in the small town, I got so excited by those experiences and wanted to have more of them. And so that started with uh, you know, early European holidays with families. And then as I got older, expanded to, I guess, my first big Asia trip, for example, was when I was 18, the classic kind of Thailand, Laos, and Cambodia. And that really opened my eyes to more international um, you know, experiences. And I started wanting to do more and more of it. I also think that, so my father was a, um, he was a musician when he was young. And then you know, he even supported the Beatles and was amazing. Oh, wow. Uh, but yeah, but, uh, you know, it's tough to make money in that job. And so he, he segued that into being a salesperson originally for a keyboard company that allowed speaker company. He was that international like head of sales. And so that involved also travel. And so I think when I reflect back now, he used to come back from these business trips with these amazing stories of the people that he'd met and the places that he'd been and like a fun bottle of, you know, Russian vodka or something, something fun. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I have interviewed so many founders who used to be investment bankers or at least studied to be thought they would be investment bankers as a former investment banker yourself 
Do you think, is there something particular about the type of person who is attracted to that job that makes them a good startup founder? Or is it that the experience of having been an investment banker makes it more likely that you will be successful as a startup founder? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Honestly, uh, probably an annoying answer, both. Uh Uh-huh. Because I think it's an industry that... Um, it requires, um, obviously a certain level of analytical capability, interpersonal capability, like a combination of strategy and execution. Obviously there's like foundational financial capability, um, and so many things and an ability to work in a high pressure environment with complex stakeholders. So anything from the highest level of your clients to the people that you're dealing with internally, as well as balancing, you know, 50,000 things happening at the same time and working with all types of people. And so, and having targets and (laughs) there's so much of it that I think both attracts a certain type of person and helps you hone certain skills. So I think the same is true of with sales. Like if you've done sales before, you're more likely to be a successful entrepreneur. I think that's true. And I think it's because like there's something like we're all humans and the psychology of sales is if you understand what the other person needs, both as an individual and for whatever it is they're trying to get done for their organization, if you understand each other's objectives um, and constraints, then you can help actually deliver something that hopefully is a win-win for both sides. Walk us through the origin story of Legends. I was still in my finance career um, and I was living in New York City and uh, meeting lots of people. And in fact, an old friend from London who's actually in the startup world invited me to a a birthday weekend in the Hamptons. And um, inevitably, the the person whose birthday it was actually, unfortunately, ended up falling sick and so couldn't join, but we'd already, they'd already rented the house. And so they said everyone should go ahead. So basically 12 strangers kind of show up at this house. It sounds like a murder mystery is about to start. Murder mystery slash big brother. Like Mm -hmm. it was... um, and it was quite a global mix of people as well. Uh, so I show up. By the time I showed up, lots of other people were already there. And you know, someone arrived at the door and gave us Aperol spritz. And it was great. Um, and then, um, so Shana was one of the people that was there. She was the good friend of someone that worked with the friend that I mentioned. Um, and so everyone was kind of once removed from knowing each other. And we started chatting. And instantly, we kind of realized we both had this real passion for travel. And we started talking about, you know, recommendations in Costa Rica and different places. And I was like, why am I digging up my spreadsheet, my list? And, <laughs> um, and like, why is it so difficult for us to find the places that fit us? And we're always the ones in our friendship group that people ask for recommendations because that trust that comes from it. Um, and so that bonding, I guess, over passions and pain points started very early. Her background was, um, she spent, she studied sustainability and finance. She spent one year in consulting and then was kind of motivated to join the startup world. She worked with three different companies gradually at earlier stages, most recently running the go-to-market team for, um, a kind of intelligent marketplace company, um, from zero revenue. And so has experience of the startup joys and pains and and growing revenue from zero um but really we developed a friendship and you know so we had this recognition that 
things could be a lot better for us as travelers, as consumers. And we also had this early realization that we felt like it was a data problem because, like I said, our data on our travels was in being kept in all these different places, spreadsheets, lists, social media, like photos. And there wasn't a um, centralized place where we could keep it for our own benefit or for the benefit of sharing with friends. So that concept of it being a data problem kind of evolved pretty early. There was an evening where I had booked a trip to Mexico and uh, I was doing a last minute pack and we had had a, we had a, a, a dinner together and we had decided this was the night we were going to name the company. And we're going to buy the domain and like we were going to do it. This sounds like a good time to take a break and learn about Cogwheel Analytics. Cogwheel Analytics is a business intelligence tool for hotel digital marketing. Since the dawn of time, hotels have only been able to compare their digital marketing data against their own historical performance. With Cogwheel Analytics, hotel companies can compare information across their portfolios in order to benchmark results. Because Cogwheel Analytics has mapped out data points for all the major brands from more than 20 different sources, hotels can stop creating manual reports and see everything from channel mix to social media to Cody, Expedia, and Google data all in one place. The time this saves gives marketers the chance to spend their time on things that actually matter, like strategy and action planning rather than creating spreadsheets. That sounds like a win to me. To learn more or schedule a demo, visit cogwheelanalytics.com. That's cogwheelanalytics.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. I had bought this old school mat from a local bookstore that I had kind of sitting out on a desk in the summer loft. And while I'm throwing things in a case, um, Shane is like, I've got it. And she stands up and she says, Legends is the name. Uh, and I was like, huh? And then she points at the map and in the mm-hmm. bottom corner of the map, it's legends, which is what helps you interpret a map and, uh, you know, understand where to go in the world and how to explore. And so we said, I love that. That's the perf- yeah, like that's the perfect name for what we, we wanted to build a platform that could help people explore the world their way. And, um, and then we realized a legend is also a shared story handed down through generations and also everyone wants to have the legacy of being a legend. And so we named it and we bought the website, uh, livemylegend.com that night. And then from there we evolved, you know, a few different iterations. Um, you know, I think maybe we'll go into it, but it started as this, um, idea of a social platform. And we said, how can we try to solve this problem for the consumer through organizing their data all in one place. And that is when we had the realization of, well, we we carry our phones every second of every day and we're taking 5 billion photos a day on our phones, which generates 14 trillion pieces of metadata, meaning like latitude, longitude, date, and time. What if we could build a technology that can uh, scan that uh, data and harness it into a profile of you as a traveler, all the places that you've been to make it easy for you to save the places that you love. And so that was the initial concept of the technology that we created. And we called that profile, your travel DNA. Uh, And so, yeah, initially we started that with the concept of 
um, uh, kind of this consumer social platform. And then over time, we realized the value that that could also deliver to businesses within the industry and to help them solve the data issues that they were having. So talk about how it evolved and what you've evolved into now from being sort of a consumer-facing app. Yeah. So we built the early version of the app um, and tested and validated the the foundation of our technology, this concept that we could take this data and turn it into something useful. We also realized there are multiple other sources of data, like our email, our your banks, like the other apps you have on your phone, the search searches you're doing on your phone, all these other sources that we can use. Um, but we've there's just so much to mine from a photo perspective and location perspective. But kind of that's where we where we've started. Um, so the early versions like proved that technology, and also importantly proved that more than ninety percent of people will opt in to share the data. So the way it works is it's all very very transparent. Um, there's a pop-up that happens that says, um, Susan, uh, create your travel DNA. Uh, and you by clicking yes, you're consenting to share the data behind your photos. Not what the photo is of. We don't care whether it's of a cat or a beach or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. but the data behind the photos is what we scan. Um, and then when you opt in, then we deliver back this, this profile. Let me ask you a little bit about that. I went to set up my setup legends like to get ready for this conversation. And I hear you about the 90% people opt in, but I have to admit there were some things that I don't know, kind of made me feel weird. I still said yes, but I didn't say a resounding cheerful yes. I was like, okay, let me do it. I'm not sure why. I, I don't, I don't know, except for that. I feel like there's this you know, what if all of the photographs that I've shared fall into somehow nefarious hands? I don't know. How do you respond to that when people bring up that concern? Yeah. So honestly, I think we're at this paradigm shift for society where consumers are waking up to the concept of their data being of value and that we've been sharing it unconsciously through our different actions and without realizing with whom or what for. And so I think we're at this important time where now when it is surfaced to you in a very transparent way, do you want to share your data or not? It's now forcing a conscious consideration of that. So I think it is right that people, you know, see it, think about it. And then, um, there's studies that show that 85% of people want to share more information in return for value exchange. So people are willing to do it if they see a value exchange. So that value exchange could include something like personalization. Uh, so making so ensuring you're going to receive the right offer or the right content at the right time um, from the right brand um, or, you know, potentially rewards that are of value to you. And so, you know, we believe strongly that there is this desire from consumers to control and own their data, and we are the tool that can deliver that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it's people sh- are right to consider it, and then ultimately, if they see the value, they will opt in. Um, and you know, this is the future of how consumers and brands, you know, need to interact because 
cookies are going away. Uh, and there are a lot of challenges with the other data sources that brands have on us. And so if they don't have data about us, how can they possibly personalize or make sure that we're receiving the right content at the right time? I don't want to keep receiving cruise offers. I'm never going to take a cruise, (laughs) but I do want to receive the 25% of this new beautiful yoga retreat. And so really, I guess to answer your previous question as well, Susan, is like, where do we come from and what are we building now? As we started from this need for a social platform and organizing the data for the value of us as travelers ourselves. And then we realized there's this fundamental data problem for the industry because they want to, brands want to personalize to us. And in fact, there's studies from McKinsey that show when a brand personalizes, um, it drives engagement of the, um, of the consumer back to that brand. And it also unlocks uh, revenue. So at least it's an uplift of, of 15% or more when they personalize. So there's this huge value for brands and desire from consumers, today's consumers, to have the right thing at the right time. But in order to deliver it, they need to understand who we are as consumers. And they don't understand who we are as consumers because all the data gets locked in all these different silos of the different platforms and tools that we use at the different stages of the journey, right? If you make a booking on booking.com, the hotel doesn't even get your um, email address. They get a, a code, like a weird traveler code. So how can they possibly personalize to you before, during, or after the after the trip? Um, and so what we we realize that we can be the data tool for the industry. So we say we're the data layer that puts the human first. So our travel DNA technology can now be embedded through our API into the existing flows and systems of a travel provider. So example to bring it to life would be imagine hypothetically in your Marriott Bonvoy app, in the onboarding or in your profile section, there's a button that says, create my travel DNA powered by legends. With that single click, you are opting in to say, yes, I do want Marriott to know a bit more about me so that I can get the right offers at the right time. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each episode of Top Floor with a couple of very practical, tangible tips to try in their businesses or their lives. You are due some congratulations because you recently won the Focusrite Web and Travel Global Startup Pitch Competition in Singapore, which is a huge deal in this industry. Can you explain what that process was like and what all it entailed? Yeah, well, thank you. No, we're super, we feel very honored to have been awarded it. Um, and it is very meaningful to have that validation from the industry and from, you know, leaders in the industry. So um, we're very grateful. Uh, so the process was a long online submission, mm-hmm. um, and answers to very specific questions. Um, I believe we shared, you know, a, a pitch deck. Um, and submitted it. And then you never know with these things where, you know, whether it goes into the ether or, or if you'll get through to the next round. So we then did hear that we got through to the next round. I believe it was over 130 startups, um, that had submitted. And then I think they took, I think they, and it's global, it's a global competition. I think they took through something like 25 to then the, the first kind of round, um, uh, from each region around the world. And then we, it was a virtual competition where we each had five minutes to pitch and a couple minutes of Q and a from the judges. Uh, and so and then they announced a winner, uh, for each region. 
Uh, and we won the Americas region, which was fantastic. Uh, actually, no, sorry. I think there was a, there was a stage between that. I think they selected for the top five from each region. And then we had another session, which was virtual, where we had to do another five-minute pitch, another five-minute And then they picked a winner from each region. And then the top five, the one from each region, were through to the finals. And it was those five of us that then presented at this, um, at the Focus Right Wit event in Singapore that you mentioned. Uh, and then a winner was selected from that. Awesome. Okay, this is very general. I'm looking for anything at all that you would suggest. But what are two or three tips you would give a startup founder in travel? Good question. So firstly, um, building your network. But I like to say it's not networking. I say it's relationship building. And so we have been so fortunate to have got connected to some amazing people in the industry. Um, and that happened like somewhat organically at first. Um, and then, you know, once you meet some people, then they're kind enough to open up their circles. So I'd say that's advice number one. It's never too early to start that process as well, even if you're very much like an idea formation stage. Part of it can be going to these events. Um, and that's a great way to, to kind of expand your network. Secondly, I would say a lot of us, I think, go into travel startups from this consumer pain point because we're so passionate about travel and we've experienced something that we think could be done better. Um, and as we share, like that was our story as well. Then you'll hear these stories of, oh, travel startups can be a graveyard, particularly consumer travel startups. And I think, you know, many, so multiple years in now, I now have a better appreciation for why some of those elements are so challenging and why now like the B2B business model can make a lot more sense. Um, even if there's an ultimately a path to bring the consumer platform into it as well. So I think listening to the advice and learning from others experience, um, is invaluable as well. I'm going to dig in a little bit more about that, that you just said about consumer versus B2B. Yeah. Um, because I'm just curious, is it because the addressable market is too infinite if you're doing a consumer-facing product or service? Or what do you think are the things that make that so difficult? It's really about um, cost of acquisition of consumers directly. Uh, it's very challenging. Um, in any in any market, actually, um, you know, not necessarily just travel. Um, so, by delivering value to businesses uh, that have engaged communities of travelers, that can be an effective way to kind of acquire acquire travelers rather than rather than directly. If that makes sense. I think that's a really important distinction. So I wanted to underscore it if yeah. we could. That That's really helpful, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We have reached the fortune-telling portion of our show. So now is the time that you're going to predict the future. And then I will come back to you in a year and we'll see if you were right. What is a prediction you have about the future of data privacy? The future is zero-party data. And so... Traditionally, brands have been able to use first-party data, which is, okay, the couple of times I've stayed with that brand in the last couple of years or the clicks that I made on their particular website. Um, it's a very limited, siloed view of who you are as a traveler, right? 
Then there's second party data, which is some brands sell the data that they each, their first party data that they each have, they sell it to each other. That second party data still very siloed and limited. Third party data is when you buy, um, effectively there's transactions um, where you can buy other people's data around the marketplace. Example be Google Trends data or Amex transactions data. Um, not very personal, quite generic. That's the thing where if you buy an espresso maker, then you start getting a million more uh-huh. ads for espresso maker. And you're like, yeah. I just bought one, dude. I do not need seven more. Stop kicking me this ad. Is that right? right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, because it's not... It's, it's, the translation of the data to making it actionable, actionable insights that mean that it's actually valuable for the consumer is kind of missing in a lot of in a lot of the current data world. So, um, privacy regulations, which we all know has been evolving and it's only going in one direction, right? From GDPR in Europe to um, you know various others, and then cookies are going away next year. Like that is happening, and cookies are what you know track your activity as user. So all of those sources are going to become even more limited than they are today. Therefore, the future has to be zero-party data. And zero-party data means when a consumer intentionally and proactively shared information about their preferences or tastes with a brand. We're at this paradigm shift where consumers are waking up to like, they want to own their data and decide who to share it with. And brands are waking up to like their need to personalize to today's consumer. Um, otherwise, they're going to lose, you know, lose business. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about fundraising for your company, what would it be? Ah, the, just the right investors. It's a process. It's almost a, what we mentioned earlier about understanding the different needs of both uh, yeah, us as humans and the different institutions that we all work for. Like that's what ultimately drives an exchange that makes sense on both sides, right? Um, Actually, as I'm speaking, that's kind of the foundation of Legends as well, right? We've created a tool to have to make this data easy to share, so that the efficient exchange can happen. Um, and so, I'd like this for fundraising as well, right? Finding the right investors. So, ultimately, fundraising is a tool for you to deliver the value that you want to through your company, like to help you build that value. It's not a goal in and of itself. It's not the end goal. It's the tool to help you get there. The people that have the money to invest, like they are investing for a reason because they want returns and they want to do it in something that is aligned with whatever it is that their mission is potentially as an angel investor or whatever that fund has as a mandate that they promise to their investors. Um, and it's really a matchmaking process of finding the right fit. And so the one thing that I wish not just for myself, but for every other entrepreneur and for investors is that there was a more efficient way for matchmaking to happen. And I think right now, if that's why like it's easier for second time, third time founders, because they already have this network of investors and they've built that with those relationships. And so um, I think that there are people that are making efforts to do that with these different tools that are available and different investor lists that are out there. Uh, but that's the thing that I think would make it better for everyone. What is next for you and what is next for Legends? Yeah. So we are actually um, finishing the textiles program right now, which I guess a piece of advice I could have said earlier is like, think about accelerated programs that could really be beneficial for you. Not only do they give you investment, but they give you this amazing, so there's this 12 week program that we're part of. Um, They open up, you know, 
um, their network to you. And essentially there's a demo day at the end of the program. So YC and Techstars are really the two top ones. Uh, so we're ramping up to that demo day where we do a two and a half minute presentation of legends and a demo uh, to hundreds of investors uh, and different people in their network. Um, in parallel to that, we, you know, we're, we're building relationships to do our next fundraising round for us to deliver our next milestone as a business, which is 100 paying B2B customers by the end of next year. And so we're currently actually building our first um, uh, 10 development partners uh, to be in place by the end of this year to like, stop proving our value of our tool to the industry. So that's exciting. Um, anything from travel advisor networks to hotels, uh, et cetera. Um, so that's really what's next for us as a, as a business. And yeah, as a, as a human for me, it's like focusing on those goals and making that happen, you know, alongside my, my co-founder and the team. Um, meanwhile, enjoying it, right. Part of being an entrepreneur, part of the reason why I want to be an entrepreneur is that the freedom to pursue your passions. Uh, and I think sometimes we have so much going on every day uh, that I you, you have to zoom out a little bit and realize that you know we chose this path and um, and remember the 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 joy in um, in I guess like yeah taking these steps to delivering on our passions and our goals. I love that. That's a another piece of excellent advice. Yeah. Okay, folks, before we tell Stephanie goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Stephanie, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? <laughs> With a glass of wine? <laughs> You bring whatever you need to make it happen. Um, well, one of my most favorite travel experiences, or multiple of them, has been going to Burning Man, which is an art uh, and music kind of event that happens in um, the Nevada desert. And, you know, something like 70,000 of pe people gather uh, and I have found that a you kind of you almost leave regular real life behind and you're in this beautiful desert environment and this temporary city is built by um by the community and you know you live there for anything between a few days for a week uh, and you exchange there's no monetary transactions that happen and you just kind of explore and connect with other people from around the world and that was something that um you know, I've I, I've had some uh, some fantastic experiences there, and I think it helps helps reset a little bit. Excellent, Stephanie Daniel. Thank you so much for being here. I know our listeners got some great advice and great tips, and I really appreciate you riding with us to the top floor. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash one eleven. Jonathan Albano is our editor, producer, and all-around genius. He even wrote and performed our theme song with vocals by Cameron Albano. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And your rating or review will go a long way in helping us give you more of what you like. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. 
Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode.